0: So for a moment, try to uh, imagine those uh, nativity sets. I don't know whether you have a nativity set at home, and if you have, it's all been packed away perhaps, or still out there. Uh, We had one of these sets, and it always uh, stayed on the top of our piano. And one of our children, who will have to remain nameless for this story, but she had a habit of... uh, messing around with the nativity figures. It was always the wise men. Every year, one of them would be turned away, facing backwards, facing this way, facing that way, and she would, oh, I said it again, she would usually drive you a little crazy and uh, the figures of the wise men, in fact, we were wondering, they didn't, they weren't removed, but it was very, very close to it. And when I think about this story here in Matthew 2, we can actually remove the wise men from our nativity sets. Now, I'm not saying you go out this afternoon and do that, but when we look at this story, we realize that these figures, these eastern travelers, were actually late arrivals on the the scene. How late did they arrive? Well, probably months, or possibly a year to two years after Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. Jesus, in verse 11, he's not in a manger. He's living in a house in Bethlehem with Joseph and Mary. And then there's also the indication, because as we'll look at next week, Herod sought to kill the children. Any potential threats to his throne, and he had children, boys, baby boys, killed up to the age of two years old. So we get an indication. They were late on the scene. So we ask a second question. Who were these late arrivals. Who were these men in the story? Well, verse 2 just gives us a description. Wise men from the east. If you have an NIV, it's the Magi or Magi. And so who were these men? Well, you could call them today influencers. You could call them influencers. They were not literally named as kings, but they had great influence through their work. They had their writings, their astrology, their dream interpretation, and all of those things were highly influential of their society. From the East, probably Babylon, Persia, and that direction. Who were they? Well, they were late arrivals, wise men from the East. Were there three of them? Well, because of the number of the gifts that are described here, we often jump to that conclusion. But again, we're not told if there were three. After all, this was a a large caravan of people, servants, attendants. They were bringing these gifts. They were bringing their supplies for a a thousand plus kilometer journey, probably around 40 days on the roads. So three, possibly, probably a lot more than three. How did they get to meet Jesus? Well, it's so appropriate that the Lord would use this supernatural star to guide these stargazers all the way to Jerusalem and then dropping down those six miles south to the little town of Bethlehem. God was guiding these pagan nobles to his son by what seems to have been a, some kind of supernatural GPS system. So why did these men make the journey? Why leave home? Why make this journey all the way to this little town of Bethlehem? Well, we're told there in verse 2, these were men on a mission, and their mission was simply to worship the new king. Verse 2, their purpose. We have come to worship him. Verse 11, a wish fulfilled. They fell down and worshiped him. So Matthew, in his gospel, as we'll see in the next few weeks, he's writing to encourage the nations to, to follow the same journey of those three travelers from the east to come and worship Jesus as king. And that brings us to our, our theme this morning in the sermon. And it's really all about the three different responses to the coming of Jesus Christ the king. We're going to look at these three different figures. The Herod, the king, secondly, the religious leaders, and then thirdly, the wise men. And we'll see three very different reactions and responses. For Herod, there is hostility. For the religious leaders, shrug of the shoulder, indifference. For the wise men, there's worship of their king. So as we see these reactions and responses, we we come to the end of the year. We begin a new year by asking ourselves again the question, how am I responding? How have I responded to the coming of Jesus Christ as king? Well, let's begin there with Herod, verse 1. Herod, the king and the hostility of this man. Matthew introduces us to one who is known as Herod the Great. He had reigned as Rome's appointed king of that region for 30 plus years. Now, riddled with disease, he is near the end of his life by the time of Jesus' birth around 4 BC. And he's going to leave behind a very checkered legacy. He was a very gifted king in many ways. And he engaged in many tremendous building projects, including that great building the temple of Jerusalem. The downside was that his reign was ruthless and cruel, and he was a paranoid man at this time of his life. He had one wife murdered, three sons murdered as well, a sign that he would not tolerate any possible rival to his throne. In Herod's world, There wasn't room for two kings. So when you look at verse 3, it's no surprise that the the words of the wise men troubled Herod. He was troubled, and he wasn't the only one troubled or disturbed. We read in verse 3, all Jerusalem with him. When Herod was king, and you were citizens of that kingdom, you were walking around on eggshells. What would be the latest cruel Outburst from this king. What more threat of violence could he utter in that land? He's a troubled king, but he quickly comes up with a plan. First of all, Herod went to the religious leaders to find out where should he go and look for this potential king. They quickly point to Micah's prophecy about Bethlehem. Look at verse 6 of the passage. And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. You can you imagine Herod? Maybe he raises an eyebrow, just a little twitch there. That word ruler, another ruler. Not happy, he says. Second thing he tries to do, he tries to get the wise men on board so that they could help him to pinpoint the exact location where this threat to his kingdom was born. So in his words, verse 8, I too may come and worship him. Now, nothing was further from Herod's mind than worship of the king. In fact, he was... Filled with a a hatred and a and a murderous intent that was so irrational in one way. Because after all, if this was God's appointed Messiah and King, who did he think he was to be able to stand up to such a king as God's chosen ruler? Now we look at Herod and we think of the our world, and we think of our world of growing hostility to Christ's kingly rule. We, we think of stories from the persecuted church, and uh, Russell hinted at some there from the land of Myanmar. We think of uh, stories coming from Nigeria, the north of that land, just before Christmas, hundreds of villagers slaughtered by Islamic terrorists in that region. God's people are being martyred today. But then we bring it closer to home and we recognize again the hostility to the, the church. In the sense that the, the desire to restrict church to private gatherings like this, but to silence the public voice of the church in the public forum. Hostility is real. But we stop as well and we see our own hostility to Christ as King. It's so easy. We've sung the words this morning, we prayed the words this morning. What are those words? Your kingdom come. So easy to say, so easy to sing. But have we truly surrendered our lives? As you and I look back on 2023, would we truly say, yes, Jesus, he's reigning as king in my life. The Puritan puts it well, William Gurnall, He says this Can one king be dethroned and another crowned in your soul, and you hear no scuffle or a struggle or a, a brawl going on within our hearts, in a sense, there? A, a struggle. What does that sound like in your life and mine? Well, it's often against anyone who would challenge or pose some kind of threat to our personal freedom or our personal autonomy and we say no 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 hands off you can't say that you can't interfere it's my heart i'm going to follow my heart you say the danger is there as we enter a new year The call is very clear, is to give up absolute control of our lives to Jesus as our king. Uh, The words of Revelation 19, verse 15, describing Jesus there as king of kings and and lord of lords. I challenge myself, I challenge you today. Is he king or is there that pushback of hostility? Let's move to the second response to the coming of the king, and that is one of indifference. Uh, Matthew in verse 4 describes two groups of the religious elite that Herod approached for information about this coming king, the chief priests and the scribes of the people. Now, these two religious parties, they came from opposite ends of the religious spectrum. They, They didn't agree very often. But here they agree that the Messiah, the Christ, would be born from the town of Bethlehem. They knew their scriptures. They knew the prophet Micah, and what he said. They would also have known Balaam's final oracle in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. Remember? Remember Balaam? Remember the talking donkey? Well, this is what he said in Numbers 24, verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So the star. I wonder, did their, did their eyes light up as they heard Micah's prophecy being fulfilled? Were they excited to sing the praises of God that the Messiah had come? Were they Packing their bags, as it were, to embark on that journey south to Bethlehem from Jerusalem. A resounding no to all those questions. Their silence and their inactivity. It's shocking, given the importance of the prophecy that has been fulfilled. Just six miles away from their homes. Alistair Begg writes, he says, they were too busy with their religion to make time for their rescuing king. Given their privilege and all their scripture knowledge, and we just, perhaps we shake our heads and we say, how could they? How could they have been so indifferent about the coming of the Messiah? Is it possible, though, that we too have great Knowledge of God, knowledge of the scriptures, spiritual privilege in many ways, and yet we too hold Christ at arm's length in indifference. Like the church in Laodicea, we're perhaps a little lukewarm as we end this year. Not very excited. We're not openly hostile to the Christian gospel, but maybe we just shrug our shoulders and we ask, well, so what?" We've sung all those Christmas carols. We've heard the familiar nativity story. We've learned all those verses. We've had those family devotionals. And yet, it's just, hmm, let's move on. Let's get ready for a new year. Christmas can come and go without any real thought. Uh, try to picture it in this way where we're time it's uh, the new year, we're time. we're in a coffee shop somewhere, we're enjoying a visit with a friend, enjoying our coffee or tea and uh, someone whispers from another table, and they say, did you know that King Charles III is visiting Vernon? He's, he's on walkabout downtown at the moment with Camilla, she, he, he's down there, do you want to come and see? And we shrug our shoulders and say, well I'm enjoying this coffee, it's kind of cool to talk to my friend and uh, Charles, uh, we can talk to him some other time, perhaps. That's the indifference here of these religious leaders. That can be our indifference as well to to the things of God, to the amazing grace of the gospel. Spiritual privilege this morning, head knowledge this morning, it's not enough. You too must enter into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as your king. To submit your life wholly unto Him. and So we pray this morning. Lord, deliver me from my indifference. Lord, you won't share your throne with another. Reign in me. Reign in me. So we move from indifference hostility. Let's look finally at, at worship here. Look at verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Can you imagine the excitement of these eastern travelers when the star remained there over that home? They could make inquiries. They could find their exact location now. But the star had guided them all the way to Bethlehem. And the action slows down. Just imagine them entering Mary and Joseph's humble home. Look at the words there. They saw. They fell down. They worshipped. They opened. They left. Imagine Mary talking to Matthew, I don't know, 30 years later. Sharing the story of the entry of these travelers from the east. Verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, And they fell down and worshipped him. They they didn't worship Mary. They didn't worship Joseph. More than all, they worshipped the king. What a contrast with Herod's hostility to a rival king. What a contrast with the religious indifference of these leaders of the day. There they were, on their knees, before the cradle of a child, before the... Presence of a child, maybe he's there on his mother's lap, face to face with the one true king in joyful worship. And really, as we look at the story, this is the only place we can be as well. It's the only appropriate response to the coming of the king. Paul describes it there in Philippians 2, verses 9 to 11. He says, God exalted him, that is Jesus, to the highest place, And gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Every knee should bow. Your knee will bow before Jesus. In this life, or in the life that is to come. He will bow. They express their worship now in verse eleven, and gifts that they bring to the king. They had carried all these gifts uh, on the caravan from their distant land, and what a what a relief now for them to open these gifts, to present them before uh, this child, this Christ. Look at the gifts there. There's first of all there there's gold. This is no uh, dollar store bargain here this is the most precious metal of all known through history as the metal of kings, so appropriate again, their gift to Jesus as the sign of his absolute authority as the one who came to reign as as god 's king and ruler and you 've got frankincense, a, a glittering fragrant gum taken from the bark of rare trees to be used at the altar for temple worship in Jerusalem, unknown to these wise men, pointing to Jesus Christ, our great high priest, the one who would be the holy and sinless sacrifice for your sins and mine, and then myrrh. Another valuable spice and perfume. One bottle of myrrh in those days would cost today thousands and thousands of dollars. So appropriate again. Given that it was used in the anointing of Jesus' body before his burial. So these gifts, you see, the gospel doesn't end with the... Christmas story, it makes sense only in Jesus' suffering and death for our sins, this precious gift of mirror, a symbol pointing us to our suffering king and servants. Gifts that foretold that Jesus was to be the the true king, the perfect high priest, and the, the savior of all who will trust in him. These gifts, uh, they were not some kind of royal care package, but as we'll see next week, Mary and Joseph could have used these gifts, sold these gifts to enable them to flee from Herod to Egypt. Nor was this some kind of Christmas gift exchange, because back in those days, by custom, the, the king usually gave something back to his visitors. But this royal family had nothing to give in return. Until much later, when Jesus would give the greatest gift of all. To all who would come and worship him as king. He would give his very lifeblood on the cross. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 15. Paul, he's, he's trying to find the words there. And he says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible or indescribable gift. Words feel, Paul. Words feel you and I today as we think of that gift. So, what can we learn in application from these gifts? Well, simply this: that the wise man brought their their very best gifts to the Lord Jesus, to the King. I always remember one of the activities we had with our young adult group back in. Lethbridge was we had a what we call the white elephant gift exchange so there was a, a limit of ten dollars in the gift you could re-gift things that you didn't really like and so there was no great expense involved and uh, I remember that gift exchange one year getting socks uh, one year I think I traded uh, Boney M for Neil Diamond somehow or other in that exchange I'm still not sure if that was a good exchange or not, but there was all kinds of gifts going around amongst the young adults, but very little thought and very little expense. The wise men brought their very best gifts to the Lord. There's a Christmas hymn we sing. I'm not sure if it's familiar here or not. It's called In the Bleak Midwinter. And there's a line in that hymn which convicts me every time I sing it. It goes like this, What can I give him? Pure as I am. If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what can I give him? Give my heart. So at the end of this year, does he have my heart? Does he, does he have your heart? Will you bring to him your gifts? Will you give to the Lord? Will you give to free grace the, the best of your, your talents, your gifts, your time, your energy, your finances to, to serve the Lord, to worship here at free grace Sunday by Sunday? So what a, what a, what a contrast here. These three different response. Two of them were fueled by unbelief, the unbelief of a hostile king, the unbelief in the indifference of these religious leaders. One of them is fueled by faith, the faith of these wise men who bowed down and worshipped better than they knew. So again, as we close out this year, we see the the fine line, the, the dividing line that runs in this gallery and any gallery in this city today Divides those watching online this morning as well. That dividing line is between faith and unbelief. Whoever we are. If we will not have Jesus Christ as king, we have no part of his kingdom. If in our hostility or even in our indifference to Christ, we shrug our shoulders and we ask him to leave us alone. That's exactly What he will do. Maybe you've read the message on those bumper stickers or Christmas cards. How does it go? Wise men, wise women still seek Jesus. It's a little trite in one sense. Sounds a little simple, but it's absolutely true. Wisdom. As we seek Jesus. When should we seek him? Well, it's very clear. Isaiah 55 verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. If you're not yet a believer here, this is your opportunity to come to Christ, to surrender your life to him as king. If you are a believer, then what better way to embark in a new year is to exalt him as our king, to submit to his kingly rule over every area of our lives. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our Father, we praise you for your indescribable, inexpressible gift to us of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you came, that you came down to earth from heaven. That you came, you suffered as you lived that perfect life of obedience to the Father. You died on that cross as our substitute. To bear the penalty of our sin and you rose again in triumph. You ascended to the Father's right hand and as we celebrate, we remember that you will come again to judge the living and the dead. And as you return again, we do pray that you would return to find us, Lord, exalting you as our ruler, as our king and our Lord. Hear us now as we lift up our prayers to you in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Let's stand together again as we sing to God's praise.